It's really good to have you here this morning as we continue our series in the book of Ephesians called United in Christ. Last week we looked at this whole reality that uh, Jesus is our greatest offense, he's our greatest defense, and he's our greatest confidence. That when we have Jesus, we really have the greatest thing going for us. We have the greatest person defending us, and we have the greatest person moving and motivating our lives. We've talked about this phrase, in Christ. It's a phrase that Paul uses to define who you are. That now with Christ, since you've believed in Christ, you are now in Him. You're no longer in your sin, on your own. You're in Christ. You're never alone. That's the promise we have because of the work of Jesus Christ in our lives. I'm going to invite you to open up with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and by the way, if you don't have a Bible, we have one in the back. Go and get one. I don't mind if you get up right now and go and grab one. And if you don't have a Bible at home, take this. This is our gift to you. We want you to have the Word of God in your hands. You can hide it in your heart. And if you do have a Bible at home but you just forgot it, just leave it on your way out so we can give it to someone else. Well, in Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to have some key questions answered for us. Paul is going to answer the questions of who are we, where did we come from, and what's the purpose of our lives? Our world, and actually, that's the quest of the human condition. We like to know, where did I come from? What am I all about right now? And where am I headed? That's just part of being human. We ask those questions. My dog, as much as I love my dog, buddy, he's not asking those questions. We are. We like to know this concept called purpose. And we like to know that we exist for a purpose. And I'm just going to put forward greater than ourselves. Our Bible, the Word of God, gives us this reason, gives this, gives us this purpose of which Paul is going to show us that we are far more than a self-defined existence. We are part, our story is a smaller story connected to a common theme fitting into a much larger grander story. And it's about, it's themed and it's orchestrated by a loving and righteous and just and good creator, our God, our heavenly father, who's given us this reality through the person of Jesus Christ. Paul is going to explain this reality. He's going to begin in these first three verses of Ephesians chapter three, chapter two, and we're not going to like what he calls He calls it out there in the world, and he calls it in here in our hearts. And I don't know about you, but I don't mind it when someone's, you know, railing on the world right now. But the second they point their finger at me, that's when I start getting offended. That's when I start, you know, my heart rate goes up. We don't like it when a finger is pointed to us. Many of us are just trying to be good enough. We're trying to enjoy our lives. We're trying to meet the minimum requirements to pass the test, to be good enough to get in. Paul's going to say, none of that is good enough. It's only in Jesus. So let's take a look at how he calls us apart from Christ. How, what does he see when he looks around us and he calls it in what we once were? It's in Ephesians chapter two, beginning with verse one, it says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul is going to give us this answer of what we were. What were, what were we before Jesus came into our lives? And he's going to say very plainly that we were dead. We were dead to God in our sin. We were dead to God in our sins. And you can say, oh, come on. I'm very much alive. Look, I'm breathing. And that's true. You are very physically alive. But Paul said before Christ, you were spiritually dead. It's like some of us can be breathing and living, but we could be blind and that capacity would limit us. We could be deaf and that capacity would limit us. We wouldn't be able to walk and that would limit us. But we still are very much alive. Paul says in the spiritual capacity, you are dead to God. And he's going to call it that we're in sin. We're in sin. In other words, we're under the influence. It affects every area of our lives. Uh, if you are a police officer and you uh, drive the streets at night, you can detect, you, you really are good at people under the influence of alcohol. If you've ever done one of those, you know, drive with the police officer, you know, nights, you'll, you'll go out and almost every night they go out, they go, oh, see that guy, he's drunk. How do you know that? Well, see how he's driving, see how he's veering, and then he's recorrecting it. And then, and then you get, everybody knows who watches people under the influence of alcohol. Paul's saying, look, it's affecting us. We're drunk with sin. It's, we're under the influence of sin apart from Christ. It's affecting all of these areas. And there's three things that are against us when we're under the influence of sin. There's the influence of the world. Paul calls it this. He says, you were once walked following the course of this world. In other words, there's a pattern in this world. There was a pattern in the culture, even in Ephesus when he wrote this. Some of them are the same. Some of them are different. In our cultures, I look at the course of our world now. What's the patterns of our world? I would say one of the great influences of this world, of our culture at least, is humanism. The fact that everything can be defined by each of us, that each of us has the capacity to figure out what's right or wrong, what's best for me, what's the most admirable things, that all of us contain the capacity to do this, that we make this world better, that we make this and give this world meaning, that we are the greatest authority, and therefore we don't need God. That's the pattern of this world. It's a self-defined existence, a self-empowered perspective, and it ignores God. A second influence uh, in our culture is consumerism. And this is uh, the basic belief that the wealthier we are, the better life is. And that the more we can acquire the physical provides the best future for me and the greatest hope in life and at death so I could pass on the material to my family. And if this were true, then we would need to look at the wealthiest in our country and say, boy, do they have the best lives? And actually, they don't. That's why we have People magazine, because it writes about the stories of the rich and famous and how their lives are nightmares. That's not working yet. It's a powerful force in our culture. 
We are less than 5% of the world's population. We consume over 60% of the world's resources. We know how to spend. We are really good consumers. We're great spenders, but we're lousy stewards because of this belief that my life is defined by how much I have. That I'm successful based on my income, based on my position, based on the physical. And we ignore the spiritual in this. That's a very strong influence. The other one is the, and I'm just going to name it, it's called eroticism. This is where lust replaces love. And people exist for my pleasure. And that's more important in my relationships than sacrifice and self-control. And so life becomes a quest just to get from someone, not a blessing to give to someone. And we are a pornographic culture. We look at women and men as nothing more than objects for our satisfaction. And we take what God has created and crafted and given dignity to and we strip it. So that we can just have objects for our pleasure. And we call this acceptable. In Ephesus, they, I mean, they had the corner market on eroticism. Their god in that city was Artemis. And she was the goddess Diana, who was the goddess of fertility. You actually could put a spiritual spin to it and go into, into her temple and have sex with a prostitute and have it all be a spiritual experience. And Paul is saying, that's what you were once under. That was the influence of this world. But see, it's not just the world. There's a person behind it. And the scriptures reveal that person. It's the person of Satan. Look what it says here. It's following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. No, we haven't changed the channel to the sci-fi network. We've not talked about a myth unfit for modern times. He really is revealed in the scriptures here as a person. He may be hidden explicitly from uh, from this culture. However, he's implicit in every segment of our culture. Because there is an ultimate good of God, there's also an ultimate evil. His name is Satan. And they are battling He is the person of evil and he's out to destroy the goodness of God, the truth of God and the people of God. And just as if you wanted to get at me, you'd pick on my children. Satan is out to get after God by picking on you, his children. But, you know, it's not just the world out there and it's not just Satan out there so that we can just kind of blame it on this world. The world made me do it or, as I've heard, the devil made me do it and excuse responsibility for sin. Paul's also going to have us look in the mirror and he's going to call it the flesh. The flesh in us was against us. We resisted God. And it's a shocking diagnosis because we realize it's not just out there and it's not just around me. It's in me. It's in me. And and uh, it, it, as he talks about it, it's in the passions and desires. We're not just victims of a sinful world. We're rebels in this world of sin. And I don't know about you, but when I'm told I'm a sinner, I kind of want to go, shh, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. And me, like Adam and Eve, I want to just cover. I'm covering. I'm not that bad. And so instead of going vertical and looking at, at Jesus Christ and what he's done for me, I'll go horizontal and I'll go, okay, okay, I may be bad, but I'm not as bad as Craig. Craig's a really bad person. 
And oh, he confessed to me what he's struggling with. And he's bad. I'm not that bad. And we we kind of go, I'm just a little bit better because we think God likes normal or a little bit better people. And we ignore Jesus Christ and we ignore the condition of our sin. See, if you're doing that, the scriptures call you away from comparing because none of us. I mean, there's some areas where I can be better than you and there's areas you can be better than me. But that doesn't matter to God. He never compares you with anyone around you. You know who he compares you to? Christ. He compares you to Christ. And for that reason, we're all in the same room. The ground is level at the cross. We all need Jesus. Paul says the influence of the flesh is very alive. And then he says, like the rest of mankind. Ouch. In other words, none of us escape this. We are all, apart from Christ, vulnerable to the righteousness of God and the wrath of God. He calls us children of wrath. We deserve his wrath. And the issue in our world today is they don't care. They don't want God and they resist him on everything. However, we love justice. Even in a world where we don't want God, we want his justice. We want the right things to happen to the right people and the wrong things to happen to the bad people. That's how we operate. So if you def- you you offend me, I'm out to get you back. It's usually on a higher level because that's what satisfies me after a while. And when we live in this cycle, look out. We become, we are not good at judgment. That, that is ruining our day. It's, it's eroding our lives. Yet we love it. We love to call it in others. We hate it when it's called on us. That's why we love reality television. That's why we cheer in movies where the good guy wins. We love justice. And that's why we beep our horns. To administer justice. You offended me. Get out of my way judgment on you that's what we do we do yesterday after a cross-country meet and and watching my oldest son run cross-country i was coming back from an area of town i wasn't familiar with i don't get out much and this is topeka okay so so i'm driving and there was construction and there was a merge and we were just talking about the race both me and my wife in the car and it was merging and this one guy it was kind of getting cramped and one guy let me in and I went in, but I went around someone who was in front of me while they were merging. And I, I should have been kinder. I should have did it, but I just, I wasn't thinking. I just went around them and they were ticked. They were ticked. I mean, nah! and then she drove right behind me. She was like this on her steering wheel looking at me. And I go, oh, I think I really ticked off the person behind me. And then there was a red light. They went, stink, a red light. And sure enough, she pulled up. There was space for her to move forward, but she stopped. And she looked at me like this. And I was like, Cheryl, look straight ahead. Just look straight ahead. We're not looking. And so she pulled up to my hood. Okay? In case you didn't see me on the side, I was in your peripheral. I'll come up here. And she even twerked her neck. And she was like this. You don't like at me. You know what happened within me with the influence of the world, the influence of Satan and the influence of just a wild up. And I just went, hi, you know, I did one of those to her. God bless you. You know, one of those. And uh, ma'am, if you're here today, if you track down my license plate and you're here, I'm sorry. I really am. I didn't mean to make it that bad in your day. 
But that's what's operating. You know, that affected me the rest of the day. Just one little deal. That look could kill me and it wounded my heart. Okay. I went home and I aerated. I could punch holes in the yard, you know, instead of... But it's the reality. Those things are all around us and it rears the ugly head of sin in our lives. Paul said that we were saved from sin. This is what we were saved from with Christ. The influence of the world, the influence of Satan, and the influence of the flesh. And he does it in verse 4 with two words. It's incredible, comforting words. He says this. Let's read verses 4 and beyond. It says, but God. Aren't you glad? You know, that's where we were, but God, but God, he says, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and he raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Wow. But God, two words that speak comfort to us and that actually cure and eradicate our fear and despair in the shame and guilt of the righteousness of God and our sinfulness. The condition that Paul says is we arrive at the scene dead on arrival. We show up dead to God, but God made us alive. He made us alive together, church. He made us alive together with Christ. Let's just track our eyes on this. We begin, we begin where we're, where we're dead. It's the low level. We start in the grave. Do you see where Paul's looking? That's where you were. You were in the grave. And you were living a lower life in a lower life world with the anti-life Satan pursuing a pattern that ultimately leads to physical and eternal spiritual death. But God, God made us alive. He raised us up and he seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus and then secures the future for us for eternity. We're no longer objects of his wrath. We're objects of his grace and his mercy and his kindness. We begin in the grave and through Christ, we finish in heaven. We begin exploited by sin. We end up loved by God. We begin influenced by sin. We end exalted in Christ. We begin like the rest of the world and we end like the rest of heaven. This is all a work of God. This is the gospel. That's why it's called good news because it's really good news. You were once dead, but now you're made alive to God in Jesus Christ. And it's all a work. It's all a work of God. It's a gift of God, not by works. Look at verse 7. Uh, I'm sorry. Look at, um, l- look at where we... Uh, it's a gift of God. It's not of works. We'll talk about that in the future. I jumped ahead of myself a little bit. The reformers, however, when they, they saw the gospel in this text, this exact text, and they looked at the world, the religious system and the organization in their day, and they saw the church selling favors from God, selling the forgiveness of sin instead of it being a gift. The reformers said, no, 
No, they stood in Latin and said, Sola gracia, sola fide, sola Christe. In other words, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not by works. It's the grace of God, that God is motivated not by his wrath to us, but by his love for us. That it's through faith alone, no longer by works. That when your eyes saw the beauty of Jesus and the the reality of who you were, you ran to Jesus and you trusted him. And that it's in Christ alone. That Christ is the object of my faith. He's the only one who can save me. This answers the swirl of questions around either our capability or incapability of saving ourselves. And he says, you cannot save yourself. Only Jesus can save you. And that that comforts us because in Christ, we have a provision of the new life that God made us alive. We have provision of eternal life that in the coming ages, we might be revealed in the kindness and compassion of God, that we have a provision of a united life that with Christ, we're never alone. We're in Christ for eternity and and in Christ We can defeat the influence of this world and Satan and the flesh. See, this is good news. But that's not the only news. It's not just who you are. It's what's happening to you. It's what God's continuing to do through you. Look at verse 8. He says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, this passage not only shows us who we were, but it also shows us who we are. And now it shows us what we will be, our ultimate purpose. And this passage tells us that we are being restored into the work of Christ. Look at what Paul calls it, that we are God's workmanship. We're being restored in the work of Christ. Christ is the great craftsman of our lives then. He's the master at his trade. And his trade is transforming our hearts and our lives. I love watching the uh, public public television every once in a while. And on public television, they have this um, antique show that they show how to restore antiques. And when there's someone who's really a master at it, it's unbelievable because you show up on the scene and this thing's in ruin and you go, why was this in the garbage? What, you know, look at that. What are you going to do with it? It's all broken down and it's all varnished. I mean, unvarnished. Everything's just looking like junk. And this person goes and starts restoring it. And the beginning of the show talks about this. And then by the end of the show, it looks restored. What makes a guy a good master craftsman? Well, a a man or a woman who's a good master craftsman, they don't see it for what it is. They, They understand of what it once was. And it's because they understood what it once was in its day, they end up restoring it and they retell the story of the purpose of what this thing was all about. So that's why you can go just over the course of a half hour and see how a piece of furniture is explained. It used to look like garbage. But those of you who collect antiques and you see how they're restored, you love the story. The story explains everything about it. 
The master craftsmen, once they, they restore something, you go, you didn't understand what this was for, but in its day, this was used for this and that, when a typical person would do this with it. And you can understand the story because they understood what it was created for and shaped for. See, Jesus Christ is your master craftsman because he was there when he spoke and humanity came into existence. When he breathed life into Adam and fashioned Eve out of a rib from Adam. He knew that original purpose. He saw and he existed with Adam and Eve loving each other and loving God together. Unashamed, without sin. But he also shows up on the scene where we've been ripped and tattered and broken by sin. And he knows the original story. And now through Christ, he comes and he restores each of us so that throughout and even into the coming ages, he tell the story of humanity through the gospel in your life. You are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Folks, here's what we do. We are saved to reveal the good news and the good works of a great God. We are saved for this. Paul says in verse 7 that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Certainly there will be a future when God shows us as trophies of his grace. But are you showing God as his importance to you? See, that's the good news, that it doesn't just flow through our lives, but we reflect the good news through our lives. We don't just aren't recipients of the grace of God and go, God, thank you, give me, give me. We're people then who share that blessing and advance this good news. Folks, God is no longer against you. He is for you in Christ. Those of you who are in sin, come to Christ. Look at how he drives the point home. Look at in verse, um, meant to mention this earlier. He says in verse 8, this is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. Look at verse 9. It starts out not as a result of works. He bookends the gift of God with two negatives. It's not your own doing. It's a gift. It's not a result of works. In other words, it's only a gift. Don't go works on God. Don't go performance with him. Everyone else in this world wants you to perform for their love. God says, no, receive my love. That's what makes the gospel the most liberating news we could ever get. And that's why the gospel defines each of us on how we will love others. Not on what they will do for us. But even before they change, we choose to love people. Why? Because Jesus loved me in my sin. We reveal the good news and the good works. We're saved for good works. We're not saved by good works, but we're saved for good works to show the goodness of God. He says we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. This amplifies what Jesus has taught us in Matthew chapter five. He said, you're the light of the world. A city on a hill should not be not be hidden. You're the light of the world. Let your light so shine that men might see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. You show the good works of a good God. That's what we're called to do. And we're saved to reveal this great God. That your life would show something greater than yourself. The God that you love and the God that you serve. To illustrate this, let me just share this story. A few years ago... 
There's a man who went to a swap meet, and it, it was in San Diego. It wasn't just a normal swap meet. It was one of the largest swap meets in the United States in San Diego. It's called the Kobe Swap Meet. It meets every weekend at the sports center in that area. And this man was getting ready to uh, get this, get a plot going in that swap meet on Saturday morning. So he's loading up his truck on a Friday night, and just parked right next to his truck was a, a dumpster. And in that dumpster, he found a, a picture. And it looked like this. And he said, I probably use this. I'm selling a bunch of stuff. So he grabbed that picture, put it in his truck, put rope around it, and woke up the next morning and drove to the Kobe swap meet and started setting up his booth. And this one lady came by and she said, hey, I kind of like this painting. How much do you want for it? He goes, ah, he went kind of high. He goes, give me 175 bucks. And she said, okay, so he reached in. So she reached in, he goes, oh, no, I should have said 375 You know, he, he thought just by her reaction. So she gave him 175 bucks. She grabbed the painting and started walking. Guy came up to her and said, hey, I like that. Where'd you get that? He goes, a guy over there, but it was the only painting he had. I bought it. He goes, well, hey, I kind of like that too. Would you take a 1000 bucks for it? She goes, whoa. She said no, because she started realizing she probably found something of great value. By the time she got in her car, someone had offered her $10,000 for this painting. She thought, I really have something. So she went to an art dealer. And the art dealer said, absolutely, you found a good find. Actually, his name was Edgar Payne. He's the artist of this. He was a California artist in the 1920s, and he was very famous. His work is becoming more and more popular, and people are paying good money for his stuff right now. Let's auction it. So he just called a bunch of his friends, and they auctioned it out. You know, she got $40,000. She sold $40,000 on this. The person who bought it, however, took it to a national art and ended up selling it by auction for $187,000. Okay, folks, what's the value of this painting? It's how much someone would pay for it, right? Someone ultimately paid $187,000 for something that someone found in the trash. Who gives things value? You see, if this were not an original, it wouldn't have caused that. Who knows your true value? The one who loved you and gave himself up for you. Who paid the price of your worth to him. You see, God in his love and his unsurpassing riches of his grace called you worth it and sent his son Jesus to pay the ultimate price of what it took to restore you back to himself. See, that's the gospel. Now, just like this piece of art, everyone who made the exchange made money, right? Guy who found it in the, in the trash, he made 175 bucks, you know, more than what he had and probably one of the largest items he sold that day. But it doesn't compare. The person who bought it for 175 and sold it for 40 grand, I'd like that kind of investment. I would. But it wasn't the true value of the painting. The one who paid 40 got 187,000. Those are big bucks, folks. I'd like to find that piece. Everyone thought they made money, but only the final buyer gave its true worth. Folks, I see it all the time. I see Christians pawning their minds to selfishness. I see some pawning their bodies to pornography. 
I see some pawning their time to useless video games. I see some pawning their words to criticism and anger. I see some pawning their finances just to materialism. And with each exchange we make, we feel that we have more than we had. Yet in the end, we miss the ultimate value. Given only by God, provided only in Christ. The one who purchased us for our true value. The artist who makes us now all into masterpieces to reflect his glory through our lives. Folks, the reality is, as Paul starts, we're far worse off than we think. But as he ends, we're far more loved than we can imagine. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. That's the good news. So, let's talk about our response to the gospel. Let's talk about being a community that together has received this and together is being fashioned into a masterpiece of God, a workmanship created for good works. What are some good works we can do as a community? Number one, we can serve. We can serve this city. And one of the key events that helps us serve this city is ShareFest. It's one morning, one time a year, in which we at Fellowship join with 20 other churches, and we go to 501 schools, 12 of them this year, a record, and we do restoration of landscapes. We, we do a landscape overhaul, and we make a huge difference. When 200 people show up at a school and, and do some painting on the outside, do some trimming, put in some mulch, uh, trim back bushes, unbelievable what happens in just three to four hours. Here's the deal. Nothing. Nothing helps me as a leader at Fellowship Bible Church communicate with other community leaders the gospel of Jesus Christ than what Sherefest has opened the doors. It's amazing. Our world is a protest world. Topeka is a protest city. There's enough people shouting at each other in Topeka. Why don't we love with the love of Jesus by serving people? We break down more barriers to people who have not yet accepted the gospel when we serve them. No strings attached. Sherefest is that opportunity. I need everyone here to be connected into ShareFest and to serve. It's one morning, one time a year that we call our whole congregation to show up. And if you'll register online, we'll get you connected. We really do need you to show up and help us do this. Now, it's easy to do that. And by the way, if you can't show up for four hours, can you show up for two? If you've got a soccer game that morning, can you come for two of those four? Because two hours makes a huge difference. It's amazing what my team did at, over at Whitson Elementary in two hours. Huge difference. We need everybody, all hands on deck for ShareFest. That's how we show the greatness of God before we proclaim the gospel in this community. Secondly, this is a little bit more hard and it's more difficult, but it involves you. How will you live today? Every day you live is a decision. You will make that decision. Will I live today like I'm dead to God or alive to God in Christ? Will this be a day where I recognize God, where I am conscious of his working, where I'm conscious of my role, of who I am and what I'm here to do? I'm part of God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Will I live dead to God or alive to God today? And all I'm saying is live the reality of your life. If you don't believe in Jesus, I don't expect you to live alive to, uh, alive to God. But if you know him, don't you think it's time 
Don't you think it's time to be a person of integrity where your belief and your behavior say the same thing about who Jesus is? See, we're called to be authentic followers of Jesus Christ. And I really believe that we need to not just say it. We also need to live it. Many live as practical atheists. They live each day kind of dead to God. They live in the dumpster, in the past. And the reality is, is we like to upgrade everything. We love to upgrade and have more money and more technology and more vacation and vacation days and more perks and more iPhone 5s and more friends. We love more of everything except Christ. Why is this? Why is this? Don't you want more? See, we need to be praying instead of give me this, give me that, make sure this goes okay today. We need, God, give me more of your heart. Give me more of your patience, especially when I'm merging in a construction zone. See, we need to be praying for more of who God is in our lives so that we can live in him with that reality ever before us. Because as a pastor, I think it's the most frustrating existence to be made alive to God and live like you're dead to God. That's really frustrating. And I don't know if some of you are living in that reality right now, but you shouldn't have joy. You shouldn't have peace when you've been made alive to God, but you're living like you're dead to him. You're never guaranteed his peace when you live like that. And so we're called to that. It just confounds me. And it's a frustrating way to live where you have the grace of God, yet you live in the pride of your performance. You have the security of Christ, yet you worry about everything. And you wake up late at night and and you constantly process. You're part of the family of God, yet you live like an outcast. You have the hope of Christ, yet you live in constant fear and not in faith. You have the provision of Christ, yet you try to accumulate the next best thing and the next greatest gadget. Folks, we have to be people of integrity. We're called to live alive to God in Christ. So I call you to live the treasure of who Christ is and what he's showing on the canvas of your life. You are far more loved, as the scripture shows us, than you imagine. So live in that love. You're not an orphan in this world. Influence, you are an adopted child of God through Jesus Christ. Live alive. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your love for us. Thank you so much for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the author, perfecter, and master craftsman of our faith. May we be people. May we be people who live the reality of our salvation, where we reveal the good news and the good works of a great God, where we live alive to you in Jesus Christ. For it's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen.